0: is the uh is the Facebook live stream not up yet? It's going to be in a second. Okay, why don't you uh let's buy ourselves just a couple more minutes if we could to get that going so that this kind of makes sense to the people that are watching online. Yeah, absolutely. Uh Clayton, thank you very much for your patience and bearing with us getting all this started and you guys as well.
1: Yes, sir. Thank you all for yeah. being patient with me. <laughs>
2: And and do thank your thank your wife for us uh for lending so much of your time to us on a uh Thursday afternoon. I'm sure you're you're very busy, man. Your time comes at a premium and I really appreciate it.
1: Yes, sir. Unfortunately I am pretty busy. <laughs> I, I just I just wish I had more control on what I'm busy with, you know what I mean?
2: Yes, I do. <laughs> more than I can describe. <laughs> Oh boy! And as soon as we hit record, he gets to hear our really awesome intro music, right? Or are oh, we not doing well, that? I, I
0: I wasn't, but we could do that.
2: Let's do that during the break.
0: Okay. Yeah. I was gonna. I was gonna save that for the editing uh, for the podcast. And oh, nice,
2: nice. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Clayton, you get to hear Andrew, Andrew rap. It's gonna be great. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm sure you've had the opportunity to, uh, listen to the podcast by now. And, uh, he's referring to the intro music on our podcast. That is yours truly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, we'll just go ahead and get started. Clayton, our live stream is not, um, It's not taken off for us, but hopefully it'll kick in and we'll be able to preserve some of this on video. That's all I understand. All right. Uh, I'd like to start by saying thank you to everyone in the audience who made the sacrifice to be here this evening for such an important topic of debate. Uh, And also to those tuning in on the live stream, welcome. And most importantly, a huge thank you to our speakers this evening, Pastor Caleb Leach and Clayton Criswell. Um, We'll give them proper introductions momentarily, but first I would like to introduce myself as the moderator for debate this evening. My name is Andrew Smitty. I'm the very lucky husband of one excellent wife of 11 years, for those who don't know me, uh, and the father of three beautiful baptized covenant children, ages 13, 7, and 1. I serve as a deacon here at the Church of Philadelphia in Traverse City, Michigan, Our church is also sponsoring tonight's debate, and you can find us on the web at thechurchofphiladelphia.net if you would like to learn more about who we are. I also host the Reforming Worship podcast alongside of the Reverend Caleb Leach. Our show is under the authority of our local session, which is worth mentioning. Uh, you can find us and follow us on all major podcasting platforms, and you can contact us there at reformingworship at gmail.com with inquiries or anything else pertaining to the show or tonight's debate. Our guest and first speaker this evening will be Clayton Criswell. He refers to himself as a covenant partner of Covenant Church of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who loves his brothers and sisters in Christ who are there. He is husband to a wife of just over a year, whom the Lord led him to at Covenant Church, and they currently have a baby due on December 25th. He has debated two Roman Catholics on the four Marian dogmas, salvation, and another debate strictly on the perpetual virginity. His podcast, Captured by Christ, is available on all major platforms, and he joins us tonight via telephone. Let's give him a warm welcome. One more Wow. Yes. And I've also, never had that before. That, hey. that is wonderful. Well, you got to know. Um, Remember that? So, uh, next, uh, by way of introduction, we also have our very own minister of word and sacrament, the Reverend Caleb Leach. Uh, he resides here in Traverse City, Michigan, with his wife, Chloe. They will be celebrating 11 years of marriage and 18 years together this October. Caleb has been serving in the ministry at some capacity since 2012. He has submitted a brief introduction in his words by saying, I had spent my life in churches believing myself to be a devout follower of Christ, but it wasn't until 2011 that the Lord graciously delivered me out of false conversion. Since that time, he has continued to reform my theology and understanding, and my church has followed this trajectory of reformation. After my conversion, I developed a passion for studying church history and doctrine and biblical languages. These subjects continue to be focuses of study and teaching for me. Let's also extend a warm greeting to Pastor Caleb for his contribution as well. Our thesis statement for tonight's debate is Jesus, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, The thesis thesis statement is, Jesus, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pastor Caleb will be defending the historical orthodox position by taking the negative position. Clayton will be uh, affirming, uh, taking the affirmation, the affirming position. We will begin with 20-minute opening statements from each of our speakers, followed by five-minute cross-examinations, followed by a break, Uh, followed by a 15-minute rebuttal, four sets of five-minute cross-examinations with one-minute caps on questions and answers, and lastly, there will be 10-minute closing statements for each of our contenders. I'd like to open us up in prayer, and then we'll get started. Gracious Father, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask by your sovereign hand, that you would uphold truth and that it would prevail here this evening for the sake of your great name, Amen. 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 And we'll get uh, we'll get started right away with our opening statements, Mister. Chris. Chriswell, you have the floor, and I'll start the timer when you're ready. There'll be a two minute warning uh, when we're getting close to um, the, the final twenty minutes.
1: Yes, sir. Um, okay, so I'm going for the affirmation that Jesus is the one name of God that makes up Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can start from the Scripture, even the history, but for time constraints and whatnot, I'm just going to stick with the Scripture. I'm going to start off with three Scriptures real quick. Um, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a Prophet unto the nations, Jeremiah 1 5. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, You are my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Isaiah 41 9. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you John 15 16 I picked these three passages to to begin this debate to show that the father and the son both claim to be the one who has chosen each of us to be his servant we also must see that although it's implied that God is never the father we must see that God himself claimed in Ezekiel 38 23 that he would sanctify himself Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. We must also see that not only this, but the Son is never defiled at all. But he has also claimed that he was not only sanctified by his Father, but that he sanctified himself as well. We see in John ten thirty six, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world. You blasphemous because I said I'm the son of God. This was when he was talking to the Pharisees and also in John seventeen nineteen. and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth, which we will come back to John 17 in a moment. But as we've already seen so far, this one God, which is the father, son, Holy spirit. Each of these persons, if you will, are all sanctified and claim to sanctify themselves the holy spirit within most teachings is the only one attributed to our sanctification as a christian but we're going to see that this is clearly not the case at all we will see that the father sanctifies us and so does the son of god jesus says in john 17 17-18 through 18, sanctify them through thy truth thy word is truth and as you have sent me into the world even so have I also sent them into the world. Paul makes it plain in Ephesians 5:25 25-27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, So as we see clearly now, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sanctify themselves and sanctify the bride of Christ, which is us, the true Christians. When we look at the action of salvation itself, there are many factors included with this. So let's just start off with sanctification itself, Um, or excuse me. Although many factors, including sanctification, play into this, we must confirm or deny that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all save us from our sins. As we see in Psalm 62:1, truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. So that means the Father provides each of us with salvation. We also see that the Son is attributed to our salvation as well. Ephesians 1:7, for example in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And the Holy Spirit saves us as well as being the preserver of each of us that are willed by the Lord to be saved, as well as being the guarantee of our inheritance, which is only given to those purposed to receive through his action of salvation. We read first in Second Timothy 4.18, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work. And will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever amen we read in ephesians 1 13 through 14 in whom you've also trusted after that you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and whom also after that you have believed you were sealed with that holy spirit of promise which is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory so as we see clearly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit provide salvation to each of the predestined children of the Lord. Justification, for example, is a judgment issued by the judge. We can either be found guilty or innocent of the information recorded by God about our, about our own lives. We are told that it's impossible to be found innocent of the charges of sin against each of us. However, Jesus Christ himself is judged yet has no sin to be charged of. Due to Christ being judged, yet having nothing to be judged upon his own life on earth, then he is justified. And as we clearly see, the justified one is indeed the justifier himself, which is the judge. In Romans 3.26, we read, To declare I say at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So for the one in Christ, they are justified by whose justification? Jesus's justification. And this is another point we'll be getting into as well. Um, We are justified and must be justified due to each of us being condemnable based on what we have done, good or bad. And Romans 9 is clear that we are not even predestined for salvation based on what we have done, good or bad, but by his grace alone. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all said to be the one justified and the one who justifies. We see in Psalms 51, 4, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. The Father is justified and the justifier. We read in Luke seven thirty-five, Jesus said himself, But wisdom is justified of all her children wisdom is always a reference to the spirit of god the holy spirit within the individual revealing the knowledge of god to them the holy spirit is justified and the justifier of all those who possess him within jesus himself is the justified one and the justifier of all of us he is the judge and the one judged in our place as our advocate We read in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even when we even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Also in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I wanted to start this next section by showing in the latest passage that it's by the faith of Christ that we are justified. Our faith in Jesus Christ, in our unrighteous state, is in unrighteousness and therefore this is why we must understand that it has to be jesus's personal faith that he showed here that justifies us because we cannot receive his perfect righteousness with our imperfect unrighteous faith in him jesus's eternal life must be given to us in order to have eternal life jesus's righteousness must be given to us in order to be saved from his wrath all the gifts that are given by the grace of god is also by the grace of christ and they are all eternally in possession of jesus christ simply put the one who gives us the gifts must be in possession of the gifts that he gives to each recipient so according to scripture in no particular order if not at the exact same time The person in Christ receives the faith of Christ, the love of Christ, the word of Christ, the testimony of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the justification of Christ, the sanctification of Christ, the glorification of Christ, the divine nature of Christ, the spirit of Christ, the mind of Christ, the fruits works of Christ. The death of Christ. The resurrection of Christ the eternal life of Christ, and of course, we each receive Christ himself within us. Just to go further on that point, the Holy Spirit is referred to as Christ several times in the New Testament alone, as we see in Ephesians three sixteen through 17, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, Jesus even said himself in John fifteen four, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. Paul confirms once again more clearly in Ephesians 4, 4 through 7, there is one body and one spirit, Even as you are called in one hope of your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is above all, through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, going back to Ephesians five. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, and that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. That's verses 25 and 33 of Ephesians 5. The Lord declares himself the husband in the Old Testament, and Christ is referred to as the bridegroom. Both titles are the same. The wife of the husband is the bride of the bridegroom. Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. I bring this up for one simple reason. If Jesus and the body of Christ become one with each other, who do you get if Jesus is the head of his own body, if the Lord Jesus becomes one with his own body, I dare ask, is that not the image of God we must worship? And who is the image of God? According to Colossians 1, 15 through 20, who is the image of the invisible God? It would be the firstborn of every creature for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And to put it even more clear, John says in verses 10 through 14 of first chapter of his gospel, he was in the world. The world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him To them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And i like to sum up this opening statement with one more passage, and then we'll conclude it. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Sorry about that. What you saying? Can you still hear me?
0: Yeah, we can hear you.
1: Okay, good. And you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, have he quickened together with him. Having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, Colossians two eight through fifteen. To in this opening statement, the Trinity doctrine which is a developmental doctrine formulated by Rome, which I'll have to speak on later for time purposes, separates Christ from being the one image of God that possesses the fullness of the Godhead, who is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Christ Jesus is only attributed to being the Son or the second person, rather than all three of the Godhead, then either the Trinitarian must display clearly the personal names of the Father and the Holy Spirit that are different as something other than the name of Christ, or the Trinitarian must admit wholeheartedly that Christ's name is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The name of God is the name of the Lord, and the name of the Lord is the name of Christ, and his name is Jesus. I am Clayton Criswell, and I am captured by Christ. God bless.
0: Okay. Thank you, Clayton. Uh, Mr. Caleb, you'll now have um, five minutes to cross-examine.
2: Clayton, I want to thank you again for doing this. How are your sinuses, my brother?
1: Oh, they're getting much better. I appreciate that.
2: All right. I'm glad to hear that, and uh, thank you for the sacrifice. I know you're busier than a one-arm wallpaper hanger. And um, should you feel the need at any time... Uh, to just break out in uh, a song, Holy, 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 God in three persons, blessed Trinity, just give me a heads up and I'll try to take low harmony. Okay. Uh, yes,
1: sir.
2: <laughs> All right. So, um, so I'm assuming that you're aware that Trinitarians throughout history, and I'm talking about biblical Trinitarians, there are Trinitarians, that are Trinitarians by, um, they are, uh, they're Trinitarians by tradition. And I have no intention of defending that. But those who are Trinitarians, by conviction, you understand that we believe that the Father is all about the glorification of the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all about the glorification of the Son. So the fact that the Son would be all in all and would be glorified by the other two divine persons, that doesn't cause us to hiccup at all. Uh, Would you comment on that?
1: Well, actually, I don't know how that wouldn't affirm that Jesus is. The name of all three being that the son seems to be the most exalted, even though they that they are supposedly co-equal. I know that, you know, we talked earlier about how Jesus claimed that the father is greater than all. You know, he didn't claim that he was greater than himself. And on top of that, you know, I do affirm that the father is all about glorifying the son just like the Holy Spirit is all about glorifying the Son as well. And if the Son is the most exalted, and the image you see of the Son is Jesus Christ, I don't know how you don't end up with one equals one. Or in this case, Jesus equals Jesus.
2: Going off of that, there's so much to say, but it's my turn to be asking questions, not making statements. Um, you you mentioned that God is one. We believe that. You you mentioned the Father and the Son. They all have a role in calling us. They all have a role in sanctifying us. They all have a role in justifying us. They all have a role. Uh, do you do you realize that that's no problem for the Trinitarian position? And do you also realize that that falls woefully short of proving that they are not three divine persons? Well,
1: well, hold on. Is that a question? Or is that a statement?
2: No, it was. Do you realize? And I and I and I just made this sti- I I made it was a question. Do you realize number one that the Trinitarian position has no problems with all of them taking a role in redemption, and that just showing that they do the same role, they all have a role in salvation of God's people, the glorification of the church, that that is falling woefully short of proving that they're not three separate. Uh, persons, It's a question.
1: Well, I'm just wondering what is the distinction still if they're doing the same work?
2: Okay. Um, is that, is that the entirety? I, I imagine that's not the entirety of the argument. They're doing the same thing. So they must not be different people.
1: Well, that, Well, that's the point. Like the whole point of the three distinct persons is that they have a distinguishment. Okay. And I'm just saying we've, I mean, we haven't seen that yet. Uh,
2: Okay. Okay. But the same logic wouldn't apply to anything else, right? Leviticus eight, Aaron is the high priest over Israel. Psalm 99. Moses is the high priest over Israel. Are they the same person? Like we wouldn't use that logic anywhere else, would we?
1: not even... Well,
2: go ahead. I just meant to finish the question. I didn't mean to cut you off. We wouldn't use that logic anywhere else, would we?
1: Well, what about Melchizedek and Jesus? Are we gonna say Melchizedek was different?
2: Oh, uh, that's an that's in house debate. Yeah, he's he's without father, without mother, without genealogies. Um, but that that can be argued that the genealogies weren't recorded. I'm probably on your side of that by the way, but that's that's immaterial
1: well i'm I'm very excited about that by the way because you know i've I've heard it taught either way but but my point is you know all throughout the Old Testament you see a pattern where the Lord wants a vessel or a house for his name to dwell in and it seems as if he can't find it but we know later that his plan the entire time was for himself to come into the world and be jesus christ That's time and in jesus christ is the image of god
0: time okay pastor caleb you'll now have uh the opportunity for a 20-minute opening statement all right
2: Our great Father and God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, let us magnify Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit, bringing all things under subjection to your feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Well, first of all, I'm overjoyed to be doing this. I'm overjoyed to be having this conversation with Clayton. As was mentioned before, uh, we are friends. The tone changes ever so slightly when we're debating. Because when you're debating, you're talking to your audience. When you're talking one-on-one on the phone, you're trying to win the person and and not the argument in particular. You also heard me refer to Clayton as brother. That is because he's been baptized in the triune name. Just like being circumcised in Israel brought you into Israel, and now it's whether you're being faithful or not to that covenant with God. So baptism is the circumcision of Christ. That is, Clayton is in covenant with God, and the question is, is he being reserved for covenant blessings or covenant curses? And our hope is covenant blessings, and I would invite you to join me in eagerly praying for uh, Clayton's repentance on this particular subject. I think his, I think it's pretty uh, understandable, his misunderstandings, because the church does such a terrible job in teaching the Trinity, how many times have you heard pastors say, Well, the Trinity is a mystery, no use trying to explain it, and they just move on? Well, of course, that's going to generate the kind of objections that Clayton is making, right? In Isaiah 40, it says, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of our God endures forever. Jesus quotes it about himself in Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, but then Jesus says, my words will not pass away. Jesus is claiming to have always been the mediator between God and man, even in the Old Testament. So we want to uh, we want to highlight that that it's God is about the glorification and the exaltation of Jesus. God the Father has exalted Jesus to His right hand. God the Holy Spirit has come as the as uh, the Son has ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And yes, their ministries overlap quite a bit, but they do take unique roles in redemption. I hope we get to some of that want to talk to you about the trinity. What are we talking about when we're talking about the trinity? Is the trinity a doctrine that was developed by the Roman Catholic Church or is it something that the scriptures compel us to? That's the first question. Is the is the trinity a doctrine developed by the Roman Catholic Church or is it something that the scriptures compel us to? That is if you hold to the scriptures, you will be forced to be a Trinitarian in some sense, if you're handling the scriptures correctly. So first, let's start with a basic definition. I need to admit my great indebtedness to those who have taught me the Trinity from the pages of scripture. The scriptures tell us to be in submission to those who rule over us, to those who have preached the gospel to us first, both in Hebrews, I, I quoted 1317 first, but also thirteen seven. We want to uh, to understand that the Holy Spirit didn't begin his work with me, that he has been faithful to the church in every generation. The church is his visible glory on the earth while he's away and has been and will be in every generation. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations, world without end, and amen, Ephesians 3 21. So let's start with a definition of the Trinity and see is it something that my uh, esteemed opponent in this debate has made uh, he's made the he's made the statement in his podcast, Apologist, not even apologizing, in 2308. Because what happens in time? Is he three persons in time? Or is this just a description to help us, seeing that we are sinful? In nature, understanding God. Um, is this something where we can say, along with, as Clayton has also said, in um, Captured by Christ, Jesus is coming soon, uh, in, in uh, 20 minutes and 30 seconds in, in the context of Christ saying, also in me, how are you going to believe that they're two different people? How are you going to believe that God and Jesus are not the same? Yet you believe in one God? It's baffling, close quote. Also, again, in 22 minutes in, in the context of the way, the truth, and the life, notice the three things he just said, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I'm the way, the truth, and the life, meaning I am the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No man comes to the Father but by me, close quote. Is this just an analogy that Jesus is using to point to himself as the one being and the one person of God? Or is the Trinity mandated in the text of scripture that we glorify one God in being, three in person, co-equal, and co-eternal? So let's start with the definition. This from James White's book, The Forgotten Trinity. James White, B.B. Warfield, John Calvin, Stephen Charnock. men I'm very, very indebted to, and you'll realize that you can pretty much... I, I haven't come up with anything new. God has been revealing his truth in every generation. But uh, Dr. White's uh, definition of the Trinity, within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if we were to make a diagram as we did this last Trinity Sunday, if we all took a triangle and drew a triangle on our notepad, And at one point of the triangle, we said one God. On on the other side of the triangle, one of the other two sides, we put three persons. And then on the third side of the triangle, I want to say autotheos or theoditas, the Greek word meaning what makes God God, right? So you put these three doctrines together. That there is only one God. We are not polytheists. There are three persons in this one God. A person makes something who they are. A being makes something what they are. We are pointing to our God as one what and three who's. As loathed as I am to quote Hank Hanegraaff these days. So the third point is that they are all autotheos. They are all unique and of themselves God. They are theodetas. What makes God God dwells in each of them. They are all participants in the divine being. They don't come together to make up God. They are themselves God, yet they are not three gods. One being, three persons. We make the differentiation between being and persons all the time. This pen has being. It lacks personhood, right? You have. You are finite and limited, so your being has one person. Right, God's being is infinite and not limited. It is inhabited, the one being of God, three persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, I have here in front of me five pages of, uh, of uh, Clayton's denial of them being different persons. So what we don't have an issue is, we, we don't have an issue with one God. We have an issue with the name of that one God. In his attempt, my esteemed opponent in this debate, in his attempt to magnify Christ, but to magnify Christ apart from um, from a proper handling of these texts, the, what's happened is he's now um, he, he's he's now emphasized the uniqueness of Christ over the entirety of of, of divinity, right? And so here are going to be some of the questions we're going to be asking today. And you have to ask yourself, it's not that he's not going to have good answers to these questions, or at least well thought out answers. The answer is the question that's before you, are these, are these answers he's going to give to these questions? Are they going to be sufficient in the pages of scripture? Who bore the wrath of the father? Who is the just judge of all the earth to whom the punishment of sin was made? Where is Jesus now? Is he at the right hand of himself? Is Jesus bearing intercession forever for the sins of his people? And if these three, and he's he's said many times, so-called persons, if these three persons are just an illustration in time, or just the way the triune God has decided to interact with himself in the bounds of time, then your redemption itself is not predicated on the intercession of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit as his offering is accepted to the just judge of all the earth who's now no longer just the judge but now can be called your father. That whole th- that whole relationship, that triunity in salvation doesn't exist if God is one being and one person outside of time. It turns salvation into, quite literally, a legal fiction. And nobody wants that. So we have an issue here with the three persons of God. Again, I read, I read you a quote from from uh, I actually read you three, where the three persons were denied, and the statement was made uh, hyperbolically not hyperbolically, but um, posing the question: weren't these just? Uh, weren't, wasn't this just an illustration to uh, to show us the different facets of God, even though that even though we are sinful? Furthermore, we are struggling with the co-eternality of the three divine persons. Here's the assertion of the biblical doctrine. The word of God itself will show you that eternally God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not just within time. And we can demonstrate that in the text of Scripture. We must demonstrate that in the text of Scripture. But before we move on from that, we've already highlighted how this is a gospel issue. We must say that if you... Understand, there is one God. There are three persons within that Godhead, and they are co equal and co eternal. None of those statements, those three pillars of Trinitarian doctrine, none of those can be denied in the text. If any of those are denied, there are simply texts that we are either misreading or ignoring. So let's go on to talk about the eternality of the three divine persons alongside of themselves. John 1 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And now our oneness Pentecostal friends would say that that's just, uh, that's, that's just a, uh, a statement of, of uh, the word as in the logos being a plan alongside with God. We would both reject that. Um, in the beginning was the word. This word would be made flesh. Clayton brought that out. The word was with God and the word was God. Let's break this down for a second. In the beginning... In the beginning, archay, being beginning, is actually a title for Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, that, of faith, that author there. It's the noun form of Arche. The, in the beginning was the word. Now we don't have infinite verbs in English. Ein is an infinite verb. A proper understanding of Greek verbs would absolutely take this conversation off the table. As far back as you want to push the beginning outside of time, name it there. The word exists alongside of God and the word was itself deity, not the same person. The definite article takes that off the table in A.T. Robertson, B.B. Warfield, Dr. James White, name it. We can stack Greek scholars who actually would put me to shame in my skill in the original languages um, can all be cited to uh, to confirm this. In verse 18, if we jump down to verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, or better better translated, the Imogenes Theos, the unique and only God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, the word is exegesita, he has exegeted him. When God wrapped himself in human flesh so that beholding him, we would not die. It was a person of Christ. And that was true in the garden. That was true in the giving of the law to Moses. That was true in every Christophanies. That was true in the gospels. And that's true in Christ's return. Still nothing, uh, nothing to separate him from the father. He is prostantheon. He is alongside the father. Let's go to John 17 as our time is Kind of coming to a close. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If there was ever a time to disclose psych were the same people, right? This would be the time to do so. It, okay, so look at this. Glorify your son that your son might glorify you as you have given authority all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given to do. And now, O Father, glorify me, parase alto, together with yourself, alongside yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. And A.T. Robertson as well as B.B. Warfield, um, Warfield, as well as F.F. Bruce, as well as Dr. James White, as well as name the greatest Greek scholars, and they'll all admit this. Some of them begrudgingly, by the way. Parasealto alto has to do with face-to-face interaction. That's face-to-face interaction. When we see that same phrase happening in Corinthians, that we behold him soon face-to-face in 1 Corinthians 13, there it is, parasealto. alto. They cannot be different persons. They have enjoyed fellowship with each other. And with our last six minutes, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Stop right there. This is a hymn of the early church. This idea that the Trinity was a later development by the Roman Catholic Church, um, it just doesn't work. This is a hymn of Christ, uh, that is a hymn of Christ as God in the early church. Paul is quoting a hymn that they all sang together. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul is using high exalted Trinitarian theology to bring out, he's using it as a sermon illustration for how to be humble and how to treat, how to treat people. No, uh, verse 6, who being in the form, the morphe of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, we talked a little bit about this on the phone, Clayton. Uh, Harpagmas, or ehhapagmas in this case, it's not something to be held onto at all cost, Right? He's not something to be held onto at all costs, that equality with God, but made himself of no reputation. This has to be talking about the pre-existence. Absolutely has to be because he was in the form of God. He didn't consider the form of God as something to be held onto with all costs, but he made himself of no reputation. Willfully, he did this, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men and being a found in the appearance of men. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. This is something he did to himself and became obedient, obedient to whom you will see obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God, ah, the person he was obedient to, therefore God has highly exalted him. How many personal pronouns do we need here before we start to take seriously? These are different persons. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those in earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is kurios or Yahweh to the glory of God of God the Father. In these last two verses is where the entirety of our misunderstanding lies. At the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those in earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And my friend and opponent in this debate's attempt to magnify Christ beyond um, uh, beyond what the scriptures would not beyond, no, you can't magnify him too much. In my friend's attempt to magnify Christ, he has strayed from the biblical example of how to do so. I want to suggest to you, you can't magnify Christ more than the Father and the Holy Spirit are. He believes that Jesus Christ is the name which is above every name. But lots of people were named Jesus in the first century. It's the Arabic form of Yeshua, Joshua. Matthew one twenty one: you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. If you, Jesus is as much of a job description as it is a name. If that's the name of the eternal God, you have a remembrance of sin embedded in God's name. No, brothers and sisters, the eternal name of God is Yahweh. I am that I am. And when that phrase becomes a noun... It's the name of God, Yahweh, Yod-Heh-Wah-Heh, assume the alpha primitive, or let the Ys turn to Js and the Ws turn to these, like is in the Germanic influence, Jehovah, if you want. I don't know why you would combine all those languages, but hey, run amok. And the Greek Septuagint of the translation of the Hebrew scriptures use kurios as the placeholder for the name Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, God's divine name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Of things of heaven, things of earth, things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the only name of God. No. Two minutes. That Jesus Christ is kurios to the glory of God the Father. When Christ is glorified, it glorifies the Father. When the Father, is, the, the Father is drawing all men to the Son, and he has done so by sending the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said it was to our benefit that he leave, that the Holy Spirit would come. Furthermore, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, things of heaven, things of earth, things under the earth. What, the, what, my, what my friend doesn't seem to understand in this text is that's a citation of Isaiah 45, 23. Let me read it for you. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in Yahweh, I have righteousness and strength to him. Men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him in the, in Yahweh, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall be glorified. The father Draws all men to the sun. The sun pays for the sin of those. Men. And by the way, when we say all men, we mean all types of men. We both affirm. Election. The Father draws those whom He has chosen to the Son. The Son not only lays down His life as a perfect sacrifice for sin, but He's been their perfect righteousness in His life, and He ever lives to intercede, intercede for to whom? To the Father at the right hand of the Father. And they have sent the Holy Spirit, which when He comes into our heart, Ezekiel thirty-six, He causes us to keep His commandments, to walk in them and do them. This is why there's this. This is a gospel issue, and this is why there is no salvation. Outside of the triune name, may God grant us all
0: repentance in this way. Time, Mister Chriswell, you now have five minutes for cross examination.
1: All right. Um, my first question is: How can Christ claim that He's the only way to the Father, yet the Father must draw people to the Son?
2: There's no contradiction. If the Father was drawing people to the Father, there would be a contradiction. But the Father draws people to the Son, which is the only way to the Father. In other words, like you have said so many times, salvation has to be of God and only of God. We cannot save ourselves. We can't even do the 1%. God has to draw us to himself. The Father does that through drawing us to the Son.
1: Okay, so are you saying that the Father must draw us to the son in order for us to have the father.
2: Let's go with the words of Jesus, John in John six, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. I think Jesus's explanation is sufficient.
1: Um, I, I totally agree with that. I was just asking, how do you reconcile those
2: statements? Um, there would only be a need to reconcile them. If I thought that having, having the same, uh, doing some of the same things, having the, uh, having eternal purposes that overlapped so much, right? Obviously the father, the son, and the Holy spirit in the scripture take on different roles in redemption, but they overlap a ton, which is what we would expect, right? Um, the fact that they're doing some of the same things does not does not even hint to me that they might be different people. I think the uh, the burden of proof is on anybody who would object to that.
1: Okay, so let's see. That's another good question. So, as as the Father has sent Christ into the world, uh, Christ said that He sent us into the world how do you reconcile those statements? Why wouldn't the father just send us as Christ?
2: Yeah. Um, again, I, excuse
1: me.
2: So, okay. So in your podcast, you have, um, distinguished Unitarianism as the Arianism of, uh, the three hundreds. So hear what I'm saying in this, I'm defining Unitarianism as one being and one person in God, right? And what Unitarianism versus Trinitarianism. I think we could all we can all come down into those two categories. I know you object to that, but just for brevity, I'm trying to be respectful to your time and answer the question quickly. I think you're assuming Unitarianism rather than proving Unitarianism. If the Father sent the Son to not only die a shameful death, but to be resurrected with glory and honor, to sit at his right hand until all enemies be made his footstool for his feet. If the father's chief pleasure was not only in the bruising of his son, but in the exaltation and the restoring him to the divine name Yahweh, then it would make sense that the father, in drawing all men to the son, would commission all men in the Son. And that's exactly what we see in the Great Commission. Because all authority has been given in heaven and on earth to Christ, we are sent out in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to baptize and teach. In that order, by the way.
1: Okay. When Jesus says in John 17, uh, I have manifested thy name unto the men which you have given me out of the world. what, What does he mean by that?
2: Yeah, there's no question that Jesus has always been the mediator between God and man. Anybody who has come to know God ever has come to know him through the mediation of Jesus Christ.
1: So do you not see that Christ is the image of the invisible God?
2: Oh, no. Without, without, without question, he English is. The
1: Spirit, as we both know, are invisible and spirits and God.
2: Yeah, John one eighteen is sufficient for me. No one has seen God at any time, but the omogenes theos, the unique and only God, who is at the right hand, who is at the bosom of the Father, he has exegeted him, he has explained him. Yes, there's one mediator between God and man. That's actually proving the distinction in their personhood.
1: But, but you would affirm that the mediator between God and man is the image of God, which is Jesus.
2: Of course. As it's stated, I'm not sure what else is being imported in that statement, but I'm not sure we're not talking past each other. I'm not accusing you of doing anything sneaky. But as you stated it, I can affirm it.
1: Well, last question for time purposes. So the righteousness that is within us by us being in Christ, is the righteousness of Christ Christ within us? Or by having Christ within us, we are made righteous as he?
2: Now, Clayton. Now you're just asking me really, really fun and nice questions where I get to preach the gospel, and so I got to send you a thank you card for this one. All right. So, all right. The righteousness of Christ. Christ by His active and passive obedience. That is, Christ not only died, right as as an innocent, uh, as an innocent, impure sacrifice. And by the way, Amen. That Christ is never defiled, right. But he lived the perfect, sinless right uh, life. His righteousness is my righteousness. I have never loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not a millisecond of the day. And that's especially terrifying for a minister of word and sacrament as we lead the people of God in worship. Yet he has become my righteousness. That's the great exchange you read from Romans 3:26. He's the just and the justifier to the one who has faith in Jesus. That was about the Father, not the Son by the way. And so his righteousness is my righteousness. My sin is absorbed in him. He died with my sin. He rose without my sin. He intercedes for me every millisecond of every day from now into eternity at the right hand of the Father, and he has given me the Holy Spirit as a down payment until every promise comes true.
0: It's time. All right. Okay, hey, we want to thank both of you guys for a very lively debate and discussion. We're going to take a five-minute restroom break for all of us just to catch our breath for a minute and relieve ourselves if necessary. Uh, Sounds good. Bear with us. Thanks, Clayton. Thank you it's one covenant of grace different administrations one mediator throughout all generations the same efficacy in every dispensation crystal centric motifs and recapitulation what i'm saying is christ was in the garden with adam he showed them penal substitution clothed them atoned for them and drove them out from the garden temple but adam